This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. A vote that ends up changing the Constitution of Venezuela has also led to the deaths of more than 120 people over the last few months. It has also meant that the U.S. government will take action to denounce the government as a dictatorship. Venezuela is a country that is in crisis, but current President Nicolas Maduro apparently doesn't seem to care as long as he is the one that has the power. To discuss this deadly situation, we are joined here in studio by Dorothy Cronick, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science here at the University of Pennsylvania. And joining us on the phone, Jennifer McCoy, Distinguished University Professor at Georgia State University. Dorothy, great to see you again. Thanks for coming back in. Thanks for having me. Jennifer, great to have you with us as well. Thank you. This is, Jennifer, truly a situation that that has gone from bad to worst. What is the gravest concern to you right now? Well, right now, certainly the uh, return to prison of two major opposition leaders who had been released on house arrest is a bad sign. And in terms of the continued respect for human rights and and for dissent in the country, uh, it's also a bad signal in terms of the possibility for reconciliation uh, within the country. So, since the vote on Sunday and the speeches Sunday night, um, the speeches have been confrontational. Now we have the, this action in the middle of the night last night to, to take these people from their homes. Uh, so I, I really fear that we're, we're closing the space for potential negotiations which are needed to resolve the very severe economic and social crises in the country as well as the political conflict and that that space is, is closing. Dorothy, what are you focusing on uh, specifically? And, I, and obviously knowing that the video that is out now of these two gentlemen who were taken out of their homes in the middle of the night is, is staggering video, to say the least. Well, I think Jennifer's right to focus on those events as concerning, not only in terms of the human rights implications, but in terms of thinking about how Maduro is interpreting the results of the election this weekend and what he's thinking about, about the power of his government and support for his government going forward. Just to put these recent events into context, you know, Venezuela is coming out of almost four months of near constant street protests in which, as you said in your introduction, more than 120 people have been killed. Uh, These protests have been fueled by opposition to what a majority of Venezuelans see as Maduro's uh, attack on democratic institutions and violation of the Constitution, and also by response to a really massive economic contraction. I mean, yeah. just to just to put the scale of of this um, into perspective, in 2008 2009, the Great Recession in the United States, the economy contracted by about four percent. The Venezuelan economy has contracted by more than thirty percent over the past four years. There are uh, widespread shortages of food and me- medicine, um, inflation, rising morbidity and mortality, and so this is really what's what's driving the current conflict. And on the business side of things, Jennifer, a, a lot of companies, American companies that have uh, have used Venezuela as a, a way to be able to produce not only for that country, but uh, for that part, a region of the world, uh, many of them have either pulled out, shut down temporarily operations. Uh, in the case of the airlines, many of them have stopped flights to Venezuela, to airports in Caracas and, and other places right now, just because it has become so volatile, what we have seen over the last few months. Well, exactly. It's the volatility 
and it's the inability to uh, to get paid or to Th- that too, uh, yeah. Translate their bolivares into into dollars to take out of the country. So that's that's been a major problem, um, definitely. So the, as as Dorothy was saying, the entire economic uh, situation is quite precarious for the country, for foreign companies, uh, and for you know the population itself. The economy has just you know nearly come to a standstill. Uh, productivity is is way down. So the, this is the major urgent uh, thing that that the government and its opponents need to focus on. And that's why I'm really focused on the potential for negotiations, because they need to, to come together to, to revitalize um, and restabilize the economy. And I just see no prospect at this moment. Dorothy? Well, I think when we're thinking about the prospect of negotiations and can there be a negotiated solution to this crisis, we can really learn from recent events, in particular the election this weekend and the election two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, the opposition organized a a protest vote. This was a vote that the opposition called for people to come out and vote on whether they wanted or whether they supported this constituent assembly, or in other words, constitutional convention that Maduro was calling to rewrite the country's constitution. On Sunday, the opposition, the, the government held an election for members of that constitutional convention. Because the opposition boycotted the vote on Sunday, we can interpret turnout in that election as a measure of support for the government, right. just as we can interpret turnout in the election two weeks ago as a measure of support for the opposition. And so I think when we're thinking about negotiations, as Jennifer said, we want to think about what do those turnout numbers tell us about the relative strength of of each side. And I think, you know, the main takeaway there is the opposition has a clear majority. They mobilized yep. many more people for their vote two weeks ago than the government was able to mobilize on Sunday. But at the same time, the number of voters that the government was able to mobilize is a non-negligible proportion of the voting population. So I completely agree with Jennifer that that, you know, needs to be a key recognition in the negotiation process. Neither side is just going away here. Both sides need to come to the table. I, I don't think there's much uh, question. Uh, in, in terms of the reporting, Dorothy, uh, in terms of the vote that happened this past weekend, the, the number that was thrown out was 8 million people uh, coming out and, and voting. And pretty much everywhere I have looked, that has been debunked quickly. And some people have said that it may be half of that number, maybe even a third uh, which obviously plays into the issues that Maduro has in terms of wanting to do anything and everything he can to continue to hold power in Venezuela right now. That's right. So the government claimed that 8 million came, people came out to vote. The most reliable independent estimate I've seen is from economist Francisco Rodriguez, who partnered with a Venezuelan polling firm to essentially go in person to 100 precincts, polling places around the country, yeah. and count the number of voters that showed up. So that's really using that, comparing comparing those numbers to the number of people registered to vote at each of those polling centers, gives us a sense of turnout. Their estimate was... Um, 3.6 million, which right. is considerably lower than the 8 million uh, claimed by the government. Nevertheless, 3.6 million, which would be about an 18% turnout, is non-negligible. And so I think, you know, as, as Jennifer was saying, the idea that the government is just going to collapse and Maduro is going to wake up one day and all the generals will have turned against him and yeah. the civil servants will have deserted, that's, you know, a, a pipe dream that is probably not productive. And likewise, you know, I think recognition on the other side that the opposition has a clear and sizable majority is really what we can take away from these recent votes. Jennifer? 
yes. I mean, we we can't say definitively for either of these two recent votes how many people turned up because there simply weren't the controls, the audits, and the observation necessary to do that. But there was there were the um, the efforts that Dorothy talked about in terms of uh, measuring with uh, exit polls and, and measuring the people coming out. Um, and then there was just a lot of uh, unofficial observation by both media and by uh, NGOs uh, in Venezuela sending people out. And so it was clear from images and from this, uh, you know, uh, personal observation of, of, of individual voting sites that this past Sunday in a couple of places, including a major sporting complex in Venezuela where they combined a lot of precincts to vote, there were indeed long lines, and I saw photos of long lines. But in most of the centers in the vast majority around the country, there were very short lines or no lines at all, and that's why there's real skepticism. In addition to the prior polls before indicating that people – there were only about 15 percent that indicated they definitely um, planned to vote. So – to, to grow up to 42% is quite a quite a difference. There obviously has been a, a, a quick reaction by the United States, uh, the government making its uh, its move to uh, increase sanctions on Maduro himself. How much impact, Dorothy, do you think that actually has? Because, I, again, we kind of don't really know what Maduro has or doesn't have here in the United States. And obviously they made the, the statement that they do not want anybody to do business with Maduro or with the Venezuelan government at this point? Well, first of all, I think it's important to be clear about what these sanctions actually entail. So prior to the vote, Trump and Pence had threatened economic sanctions, which could take the form of, for example, limiting oil purchases from Venezuela, oil being Venezuela's counting for almost 100 percent, 93 percent of Venezuela's export earnings. Another form of economic sanctions could be limiting the sale of light crude to Venezuela, which could also be very damaging for the Venezuelan economy. Yeah. That's what was threatened. That Those are not the sanctions that were, in fact, imposed yesterday after Sunday's vote. The sanctions that were imposed were targeted sanctions against Maduro himself, things like freezing his assets in the United States. And In terms of the impact, I mean, I I think that there is a real danger here that those types of targeted sanctions could actually play into Maduro's hand. You know, you see him saying things like... Emperor Trump, you know, doesn't want our democratic process to go forward. Uh, the imperialist United States, I'm blaming uh, the economic troubles on the United States. And so, um, you know, some people even called these sanctions a gift for, for Maduro in that it, it helps in some ways his rhetoric of um, talking about U.S. interference and blaming U.S. interference for Venezuela's problems. How much economic impact, and obviously it seems like it, it's a rather large one, Jennifer, has the, the dip of oil prices been on the Venezuelan uh, economy in terms of you know, the amount that they produce and the amount that they can get when, when trying to move it to, to various other countries? Well, it's a, uh, it's a combination of things. It's the, a decline in their own production and their own productive capacity, along with a decline in uh, prices. So their, their revenues... Um, as a result of both of those things, you know, are are definitely much lower um, this year than in the past. Uh, but the dependence on the United States for dollars from their oil exports is is really critical for Venezuela right now, because about a third of their total production goes to the United States, and that's the major source of actual 
dollar payments. Uh, another large proportion, a uh, little bit less than a third, goes to China in repayment for prior loans. So it's not new income. And um, another portion goes both for internal consumption and to um, the Caribbean uh, countries, Cuba and, and other allies in the region, which are given very discounted oil uh, with future payments. So that's why the exports to the United States are really crucial for the income uh, right now. And the potential for or the threat of sanctions on that was going could have been very devastating or could be if they were still considered very devastating for the population, um, as, as Dorothy was talking about. And that's that's the dilemma with considering um, sanctions. Do you hurt the population right. more than than the government that you're that you're targeting? Which ends up being very important, considering, as you both have alluded to, uh, food is obviously a big concern right now. Uh, Health care. Uh, obviously also has to be a big concern right now with all of the people that are struggling right now in, in Venezuela. Absolutely. I mean, as Jennifer said, the, Venezuela sells a large proportion of its oil to the United States. And so I think in thinking about the impact of these economic sanctions and in thinking about from the United States perspective, would it make sense to impose sanctions on the sale of Venezuela's oil to the United States? We have to think not only about um, the economic impact, but the, the political impact, right? And yeah. so I think one thing that's important to note here is that in recent polls, 63% of Venezuelans say that they oppose U.S. economic sanctions against oil exports. So that that is obviously a large proportion, not only of the opposition, but of people who support the government, oh. well, and or that is, of people who oppose the government, also don't think that these sanctions are a good idea. And so we, um, there could be a political, politically could buy, could backfire. Well, because they they realize that as as important as it could be, Jennifer, to have sanctions and, and hurt Maduro, you don't want to hurt your own people in the process. And and I think any country, uh, whether you're pro or con against a particular president, is going to support it when the people themselves are the one that are impacted the most. Right, exactly. And, and there's another problem. If they're unilateral, even though the U.S. is the is the easiest and the most feasible commercial partner for Venezuela's oil. You know, they, they could eventually um, sell their oil and, and buy the light crude that, that they need that Dorothy mentioned from others. It will just be more costly. Uh, so, you know, to be truly effective, uh, sanctions need to be multilateral, not unilateral. But there is another possibility that is beginning to happen, and that is that uh, at about a dozen countries, I think, so far have in Latin America, uh, the U.S. and Canada, and some in Europe have said that they will not, you know, formally, they will not recognize the authority of this new constituent assembly. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the importance of that is not just formal diplomatic recognition, but if this new assembly takes on the, the authority that the, the existing legislature had, or, or has constitutionally, but its authority was removed in this area, to approve financial transactions, um, joint ventures in the oil sector, and uh, international loans and, and debt, then uh, if the new co constituent assembly takes on those decisions, but it's not recognized by a number of important um, governments and partners, that will have an effect on Venezuela's capacity to maneuver in the international bond market and commercial market. Dorothy? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that, again, though, the question is, so as Jennifer noted, the U.S. is far from alone in condemning the election that happened on Sunday, sure. not recognizing the authority of the new um, Constituent Assembly, Constitutional Convention. Um, and the, I think the question there is, if that lack of recognition leads to further starving the Venezuelan government of cash, cutting off their access even more than they're already cut off to international lending markets, what does that do to the political situation? Mm -hmm. And, you know, is the idea that, well, Venezuela isn't suffering enough. And, you know, if the economy were even worse, support for Maduro would be even lower. And I think right. if you believe that, then you might think that this kind of lack of access could facilitate a transition. Um, if you think that the barrier to transition is not so much uh, lack of support or um, too much support for Maduro among the population, but rather the reticence of people in the government and in the military to consider what our lives would be like in a potential transition, then we have a different story. Seemingly, though, Jennifer, any kind of move to have negotiation, uh, you know, if it, if it were to occur any time in, in the near future, part of it, at least coming from the Maduro side, would be that he would want to stay a as leader. A and that's that's kind of a hard thing to, you know, to see it actually happening, considering what we have seen in terms of the numbers of people that have died in these protests. Obviously, what happened uh, overnight with the uh, two opposition leaders uh, being taken uh, in the middle of the night. It's hard to see anybody from the opposition wanting to negotiate something that would include Maduro as the leader. Oh, definitely. That's that's the case in any um major effort to resolve this situation, uh, what both sides are going to need are assurances that they will not be annihilated by the other, that there will not be one victor and one loser right. who's excluded from all uh, political possibilities for the future to run for office, uh, economic benefits. But uh, also, there's the fear, um, you know, both directions now, I think, of a witch hunt and, you know, the lack of due process and simply jailing people, rounding them up. The, the government fears that with a memory of it actually happening against them after the 2002 uh, coup against Chavez uh, that lasted only two days. But the coup government did start rounding up Javista politicians. So there is that actual memory. And then there is what Dorothy is alluding to, the people who are accused of actual crimes, both human rights violations and uh, criminal activity and corruption, et cetera, will, of course, fear that if they are, you know, lose the government, lose power, that they will be put on trial or yeah. extradited to the United States. So that can be a major uh, sticking point. So any negotiations have got to ensure uh, due process and independent judiciary, but I think also some form of transitional justice for for many people that might consider reduced sentences in exchange for reparations or uh, acknowledging the responsibility, giving information, this kind of thing. Dorothy? I think this is the really difficult thing about the situation that Venezuela is in, the situation that other countries in Latin America and around the world have been in about transitional justice, that there it may feel distasteful to many people to say to people who've been accused of, of human rights violations, of corruption, of drug trafficking or of other crimes to say not only that 
in a transitional after a transition, the perpetrators would be guaranteed due process, but in some cases that there might be some measure of amnesty. I think that that, that feels very distasteful and very difficult to a lot of people. But as Jennifer said, I think that that may be what's required. Uh, you mentioned Jennifer before about about some of the oil trade partners. Uh, what kind of impact could they potentially have? And, and as you alluded to, Cuba being one of them. But Cuba has kind of a deal where you know they are supplying uh, medical, if, if memory serves me, from their side, and they're, they're getting a fairly decent deal on oil coming back to them. It, it, a lot of these partners probably don't have a lot of uh, a, a lot of room to operate with Venezuela at this point. Correct. I think the uh, the key countries uh, are Russia, China, Cuba, and the United States. The United States, because of what we said already, it's you know its impact within Venezuela's trade sector. Cuba, um, because of what you said, an exchange not only of doctors but also intelligence services and security services in right. exchange for um, very cheap oil. Um, but Russia and China are absolutely critical because they, they serve in many ways as sort of a lender of last resort to the government. Um, if they have been giving loans, they have been uh, Russia has been investing, and if that um, you know if that continues or if they you know forgive some of the debt, that will enable the government to get through some of the difficult economic months coming up in November. Um, the oil company PDVSA owes major bond payments, and the next year uh, sovereign debt is coming due in 2018. So how the government gets through those points will depend a lot on what Russia and China do and how skittish they are about continuing an investment in a very precarious situation or how much they think they need to shore it up in order in order to protect their investment. Dorothy? Yeah, well, I, I agree with Jennifer that the international community and especially these key governments have a big role to play here. Um, you know, one thing that I think is important to note in terms of the government's access to financing, and as Jennifer said, the ability to make these bond payments, is that the opposition in the legislature has some opposition leaders have attempted to block or restrict access to the kind of temporary financing that's needed in order sure. to make these payments. And interestingly, uh, in polls, that that is very unpopular, I think, even among people who oppose the government. And so, again, we're back to this question of does default facilitate transition? Does it hinder transition? And I think that's that's an important question. Is there is there a formula here, do you think, uh, uh, Jennifer, to try and see if uh, if they can get some sort of negotiation and then start to try and rebuild the economy of Venezuela right now? Yeah, the formula um, that I see as the most desirable, doesn't mean the most likely, but would be to negotiate an interim government acceptable to both sides, but that would not be a political government uh, and would not be running in the next elections, but would be tasked with working with the international community who would provide incentives for this um, from the development banks, et cetera, to provide emergency aid as well as uh, loans to help restabilize the economy, meet meet its foreign payments or renegotiate its foreign payments, its foreign debt. Um, and this interim government, therefore, being focused on the economic and social situation and restoring the institutions, the separation of powers, and then uh, have elections, you know, down the road. I don't know exactly how long this could take, a year, two years, right. uh, whatever is estimated. 
that would be the ideal um, formula. So we have to focus not just on sticks and sanctions, but on incentives. And that's where, you know, assurances of due process, potentially transitional justice, which is not just amnesty, but, you know, conditional reduced sentencing, perhaps, for some, um, those kinds of incentives and, and for aid to help out. Dorothy? So I think that the elements of this potential negotiation that Jennifer mentioned, incentives, um, conditions for amnesty and transitional justice, a timetable for elections, I think all of those are are absolutely important elements of any potential negotiation going forward. I think another thing that's going to be important here is for both sides to recognize what's happened over the last two weeks. What have we learned over the last two weeks? Again, two weeks ago, the opposition held a vote in which it was able to mobilize more than 7 million voters. That's a huge show of strength. And what that tells us is that the opposition has a clear and large majority. At the same time, as we said, Sunday, the government mobilizing 3.6, 3.5, according to the estimates we have, million voters means that the the government, while a minority, is a non-negligible minority. And I think that knowledge is really important for both sides to take to the negotiating table. Thank you both for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Dorothy, for coming in. Greatly appreciate it. Jennifer, thank you for uh, joining us on the phone today. Thank you, too. You got Jennifer McCoy from Georgia State University, Dorothy Cronick from here at the University of Pennsylvania. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.